T.J. Weeb was murdered on January 5th, 2003, and this is his mother's story. Mourning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, I know someone that was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. Murder causes confusion and fear in communities. It certainly did for me. But you know what? I can't even begin to imagine the effect it has on families, on loved ones, on children. The sadness. The loss. I wanted to create a podcast that would give a voice to loved ones of murdered victims. Mourning the Murdered is that podcast and is created in remembrance of our victims. You will never be forgotten. The opinions expressed on Mourning the Murdered are not necessarily those of the host, producer, or its broadcasters. Sensitive topics will be discussed and are not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, Karen, and thank you for being with me today. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Karen O'Moro was born in Edmonton. Her family moved to Brandon when she was an infant, and then to Winnipeg as a youngster. Floyd Weeb was a lifelong Winnipegger, born and raised there. Winnipeg, in 2003, had a population of about 680,000 people. Winnipeg is named after the nearby Lake Winnipeg, which comes from the Cree word, muddy waters. The Red River, a historical focal point of this city, runs through the downtown core. This is a predominantly English-speaking city. They not only have the highest population of Aboriginal people, but also the highest multiracial population in Canada as well. Winnipeg is the capital of Manitoba, and this province is located in south-central Canada, in the prairies. Winnipeg is also known for the coldest winters in any major Canadian city, and is least likely to have one day above freezing in the winter. Winnipeg is called the Gateway to the West, and is a railway and transportation hub. It is also known for its famous ballet school, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet which is very well known in Canada and around the world for its excellence in dance education and is the longest continuously running ballet school in North America. Winnipeg was the first city in North America to develop a centralized emergency phone service, emulating the United Kingdom's emergency phone system in 1959, and they used the phone number 999, only switching to 911 in 1967. They certainly were at the forefront of safety for their citizens. Karen and Floyd started dating in the seventh grade. A true love story. Something everyone always wants. That true childhood romance that turns to marriage, children, and a long lifetime together. After graduating high school, off they went to continue their education and begin the next phase of life 
discovering and following their passions. Karen became a teacher in music and English, a noble profession that points to her nurturing and caring character. Floyd was an entrepreneur, working mostly in the advertising and printing industry. They got married in 1975, and when they decided to start a family, it took three and a half years before they finally found out the news they were waiting so long to hear. They were pregnant. They were about to embark on the journey of parenthood. And they couldn't be more excited. On March 21st, 1982, TJ was born. He was born into a loving family unit, and the house he was brought home to was the only one he ever lived in. How about if we start at the beginning? What was the day of TJ's birth like? The day of TJ's birth was an interesting day. It was March the 21st in 1982. So in that year, that was the first day of spring. I had been in labor all evening, and then in the morning, uh, we went to the hospital, and they broke my water, and he was born within about two hours. So it was a very, very fast delivery. Wow, that's Uh, great. Yeah, but he was a sick baby. He was a nine-pound baby that had meconium asphyxia. Meconium asphyxia, or meconium aspiration syndrome, is trouble breathing, respiratory distress, in a newborn who has breathed or aspirated a dark green sterile fecal material called meconium into the lungs before or around the time of birth. I didn't really understand what that was, being a brand new mom, but he was born at the Women's Centre. And he was put into the T1 nursery for five days on an IV and because he was blue. I didn't hold him in the delivery room, and I only held him for a few seconds in the recovery room, and then he was gone. And he was quite ill. But he recovered, and five days later, took him home. Well, that's great news for you then at that time. Yes, it was very exciting because we'd been trying for about three and a half years. So, Oh my, so that must have been a very exciting day. It was, it was, yeah. And does TJ have any siblings? Uh, TJ has twin brother and sister that were born 11 months, three weeks after he was. Oh my. Yeah, so I had three little babies, basically, first under two. And then, of course, they were always very close, and their birthdays were are on February the 29th. So their birthdays were leap year. They were leap year babies, and then they also were just three weeks before TJ's birthday. So we celebrated birthdays through February and March. It seemed like forever. That must have been a busy household for you. It was very busy, yes. And were they close growing up? Yes, we were a very, very close family. We did everything together. My husband and I never traveled separately from the kids until Stacy and Chad were five, TJ was seven. We went away, but other than that, everywhere we went, we went as a family. So everybody was very, very close and actually remained very close all the way through until uh, TJ's death. Well, that must have made it even more difficult when this happened because everyone was so close. So it must have had such a big impact on everybody. Uh, horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Stacy and Chad were just 18 and oh. had just graduated from high school and were taking a year to sort of decide what they wanted to do. 
So they were both working, and uh, TJ was in uh, welding, a welding course at what was called the Winnipeg Technical College, now it's MITT, and, uh, and also working at the time. What about as a child? What was TJ like? She was a very intense child. He worried all the time about everything. He worried particularly about his, his dad and I. And, you know, one of the things I remember from when he was a very small child, because he was two years older than Stacy and Chad, and because when you have twins, anywhere you go, you have to have a place, an extra place to put a baby, right? It's, it's complicated when you have twins. And I didn't have a twin stroller right away, so... And they were born in February, so, you know, it was hard to get around with them. So TJ got to go, if one of us was going to the store, he got to go to the store. And he struggled with that because he said, if I go to the store with Daddy, then Mommy, you'll be all by yourself, and I, I think you're going to be lonely. But if I go and stay home with you, then Daddy has to go to the store by himself, and then he's going to be lonely. So he's a, he was a, a very, like, from the time he was, you know, three and four years old, he was a very intense child and really uh, worried a lot about us. But it sounds like also there was some compassion in there as well. Oh, very much. Mm-hmm. TJ felt like he was Stacy and Chad's other dad. He looked after them, you know. He played with them, but he also, you know, made sure they were okay. And that was a trait of his. He was always looking out for the underdog. Oh, that's very nice. He sounds, like I said, like very compassionate and kind young man. Yes, he was that indeed. And as he got older, what was what were his teenage years like? His teenage years were uh, were interesting. I remember uh, we we're, were very big into snowmobiling, and I remember him reading the snowmobiling magazines that would come to the house. and And there was one article that was written as a letter to the editor from a snowmobiler that was complaining about the fact that you couldn't drink and drive. In those days, you know, a lot of people in the country would get on their sleds and go to the pub and stay there for the evening and then drive their sleds home. And, of course, that became, you know, something you couldn't do as it became more, the the sport became more and more regulated. And then, you know, it's treated as a driving infraction if you do that. So this person had written into this magazine saying they thought that was such a stupid rule that, you know, people should be allowed to have a few drinks, and, it, and and that was not a problem. And I remember TJ's reaction was, like, why would anybody write that? That's the stupidest thing. Of course you can't drink and drive. Wow. How old was he at that time? I think he was around 15. My goodness. He had quite an insight for a young man of that age. He, he was a very interesting child. He could talk to anybody. Like, he he because we had three kids and they all played baseball. So there would be two kids that would play on, you know, two of the nights. And then a third, the third kid would play on the other two nights. So we were baseball Monday to Thursday nights, pretty much. And in the spring and and that, and so if he wasn't playing, you know, he was observing his sister or brother, whoever it was, and he would be sitting in the stands and he'd be visiting with all the, all the parents of the other kids. And, you know, they all had great conversations. Like they all have very good memories of him. So he was bright and outgoing as well. He was very much, although he did struggle in school. It was a little bit confusing for me as to why he did have so many issues in school because, you know, he was doing mathematical equations before he started school. And he understood the concept of negative numbers before he started school. 
he seemed, you know, quite advanced. We put him into French immersion and he did very well for the first few years, but then he started to falter and and started to I don't know if it was that he just didn't wasn't interested or what the problem was. We eventually had him tested and he was solidly average in all his abilities. So, you know, he could do the work, but he uh, either chose not to do it or, you know, just didn't want to do it. I don't know. Right. That must have been hard to watch your bright, outgoing young child going through something like that. It is, it is hard. And I was a, you know, a visible presence in the school for sure. And as well, you know, I'm a teacher. So for my kid to struggle in school was was hard to to deal with for sure. But when it was French immersion, I don't speak French. And so, you know, when he would come home with whatever homework and he would do it and he would say he was done, then I had no way of understanding whether it was done or not unless I heard back from the teacher. Right. That can be a challenge when there's a second language involved for sure. Yeah. And what about high school? In high school, by that time, we feel that he probably was already smoking pot and experimenting with drugs. And grade 10, our high school for French immersion starts at grade 9, actually. So grade 9 and grade 10, he struggled with school. And then in grade 11, he basically didn't attend his classes and he failed grade 11. And I was really angry with him because he was supposed to graduate in 2000. And because he failed pretty much the whole year, that put that in jeopardy. So I actually, after grade 11, I pulled him out of the school he was attending and sent him to an English-only school. I made him go to summer school. I made him take correspondence courses. And uh, he also started in doing auto body technician at Winnipeg Tech. And he was able to complete his grade 11 and 12 in one year. Wow, it sounds like you really were a hands-on mom and very involved in his life. Very much so, yeah. With such a dedicated and loving mother and family, it is no surprise that from when TJ was a young boy, everyone always liked him. He was always welcome to return after he played at friends' homes and was considered to be a good influence on people. TJ's friends say he was very popular and known to be a very nice guy. The person who was the least confrontational. He never got in a fight and would be someone who wouldn't even have defended himself if he did get into one. TJ had a hobby that he really enjoyed. He liked to tinker with car stereos, installing them in cars. TJ had a friend. She had recently moved in with a man who TJ believed was not a very good influence on her. And TJ was encouraging her not to live with him. As he always looked out for people and wanted the best for others, he certainly wanted the best for this girl, who called TJ her best friend. So when this girl, who we will for the purpose of this podcast call his best friend called and told him that she had a car stereo for him, he had no reason to believe there would be an ulterior motive. He believed, in good faith, as anyone would when a friend calls to say they have thought of you and have something for you, that he would be going to get a car stereo, that he would be meeting his best friend as he always did and live to see 
another day. Devastatingly, this would not be the case. This so-called best friend called him to lure him into a plan that had been put in motion by several people to kill him. To kill him because TJ thought the man his best friend was living with was not good for her. To kill him because he had argued with this man on a few occasions over this very topic. To kill him because they wanted to. The people she and the man she lived with had called were about to start a series of events that were absolutely horrific. Off they all went to get the stereo. This man, along with TJ's best friend, had other people called to set a plan into motion that would forever change the Weeb family. Would forever change the community. This is the story of TJ Weeb's murder. Tell me about... How did you find out that your son had been murdered? Well, for the first time, TJ chose not to come down to the lake for New Year's. In our family, we celebrated New Year's with our family and neighbors at the lake and snowmobiling and having dinners and all the rest of it. And the rule was that until they turned 18 years old, they had to come to the lake. And then we felt by, you know, the time they were 19, we had to give them some freedom. But he chose to come down when he was 19 and celebrate New Year's with us. But when he turned 20, that year he chose not to. So that uh, caused a uh, kerfuffle for sure. My husband had bought a very nice brand new snowmobile that he wanted, you know, to be able to share with TJ. Uh, TJ had his own snowmobile, but I mean, it's exciting when you buy something new and, you know, you want the kids to be able to enjoy it too. And TJ made plans to see his friends instead of come to the lake. And that caused a very, you know, big kerfuffle between his dad and him. But at any rate, we, uh, he didn't come down to the lake. And then the day that he was murdered, he called us at the lake to apologize. He said to his dad that he was really sorry that he had, hadn't come to the lake, that he should have come to the lake. He said that he had been betrayed and by a, a girl and that he didn't know if he could ever forgive her, but he felt like he should forgive her. And uh, so they had quite a conversation. And I was still sleeping. It was in the morning and I was still sleeping. So when I woke up, I called him and we had almost the same conversation. He told me, you know, he said he was really sorry for all the terrible things that had happened and that he was you know, really wanting to, you know, make things better. And I said to him, you know, it doesn't really matter what's in the past. We take from today forward. We had discovered that TJ was involved very heavily with drugs in the end of November. So we were dealing with that whole issue. And we had made an agreement with him that if he wanted to live at home, that he was not going to be involved in the drug lifestyle. If he wanted that lifestyle, then he had to move out. He agreed that he would leave that and that he wanted to stay as part of the family, stay home. So the deal had been that on January the 6th, which was the first day of school after after Christmas break, that 
we were going to start down this path and get him some counseling, get some family counseling, get some, get him seen by a psychiatrist uh, and a medical doctor to see what damage he'd done to his, his system and, you know, start down that path of healing and, and, and that. On January the 5th, we came home and expected to have dinner uh, with the family and he wasn't home. And he had already been murdered by that point, but we didn't know. So, you know, we started, we didn't, we thought, well, okay, he's made a choice and, and we'll have to, you know, continue working on this. And he didn't come home the next day. And we thought, well, you know, we didn't know what was going on, but we thought, well, he's 20 years old. You know, he's making some choices and we'll deal with it when we see him. And then on the Tuesday, my son, other son, started phoning around to the hospitals and to the police and to see if anybody had found him. And nobody had found anything about him. So then my husband ended up going down to the police station with his sister, actually. He went to the vice department because TJ, we knew he'd been involved with drugs. And then the police in the vice department said that they had heard TJ was missing through the grapevine on the street. They knew who TJ was. They'd heard he was missing. They heard that he had gone to Vancouver to buy some drugs and that he would be back. So they said, you know, we don't feel there's any cause for concern just yet. And so we started working with the police and, you know, contacting them, finding out if they knew anything more. And, of course, we started phoning all of TJ's friends and more people. Somebody would say, talk to this person, somebody we didn't know. And, you know, we went through all of it. We started just looking for him very intensively at that point because the police felt that he had willingly gone somewhere on his own. They were not going to put out a missing persons report. So for three weeks, they didn't put out any kind of a report. All they did was assist us in looking for him, and they kept in contact with us. And then after the third week, the Friday of the third week, they put an announcement in the paper that he, a missing persons announcement in the paper. And we had not told any of our family, any of our friends what was going on, except for one, my sister that lived in New Brunswick knew, and Floyd's younger sister knew. So at that point, we had to, you know, tell the family that there, what was going on, because obviously it was put out in the public. We didn't want our family to be the last to know. And we had to tell everybody that he'd be involved with drugs, that he was missing. And as it comes out of the courts, that's when the case broke that weekend. So by Sunday, it had turned to homicide. But the police told us, don't give up hope. We've had lots of cases that have gone this way. And it turned out that nobody had ever died. And, and you know, so don't give up hope. And they, but it was the homicide department that was looking for him. Along with the vice, the people that we knew from vice were still keeping in contact with us, still looking for him. Then after the next week, it seemed that things started to kind of change. And the sergeant that was involved in homicide started to, you know, sort of indicate that things were ramping up a little bit. And it turned out that Thursday night, well, I guess it must have been before Thursday, but I guess the arrest was made on Thursday. They flew to Calgary anyway. Seven police officers flew to Calgary where two of TJ's killers had fled. And the Calgary police arrested them. 
and then the Winnipeg police officers uh, interrogated them there, and then they brought them back to Winnipeg. At that point, the sergeant involved had still hadn't told us that TJ had died. He still didn't tell us anything other than that they were looking for him. So he had told my husband that he was going to be coming to our house around 3 o'clock on that Friday. So we got Stacy and Chad and, and Floyd and I all were gathered waiting for them. And he didn't come. And he didn't come. And he didn't come till about 7.30 at night. And all this time we're waiting and waiting to find out news. And then at 7.30 he came and he told us that TJ had, had been murdered. That they had arrested two people in Calgary for it. And that perhaps the arrests had not been completed. What had happened, as much as he could tell us at that point, in terms of the way that the arrests and so on had been done. And when we asked him why TJ had been murdered, he said it was because of jealousy and greed, but they wouldn't explain that. When you hear how they killed TJ, you will begin to understand how sadistic this crew of hooligans were, but not the horror that his family went through. These three decided to make a concoction of drain cleaner that they put in syringes, which they planned to inject into TJ. Once they had him sitting in the front seat of the car, they began to drive off. They began to inject him with the needle. Well, that didn't work. So they attempted to strangle him from behind with shoelaces. And when that didn't work, they then stopped the car along the side of the road, dragged him from the car with such force that his shirt, jacket, and a shoe came off, stomped on his chest, and stabbed him several times in the neck. While all of this was happening, phone calls were being made to the man that TJ's best friend was living with to be sure that the murder was taking place. Did you hear that? Well, so did the weebs. In court. As is common in murder cases, the family knows very little until the preliminary hearing or the, if there is a preliminary hearing until the actual court date because they don't want to compromise the case. Being read out to them from court documents and through court testimony about their child, they learned the reality of TJ's death. This is not something that any mother should ever have to hear, nor any family member, nor anybody. The complete disrespect those murderers showed for TJ is absolutely abhorrent. This case outrages me, as I'm sure it does you as well. The horror this family had to live through knowing what their son's last moments were like, knowing that he was left to die in a ditch filled with snow, absolutely horrible. How did you feel the early days of the investigation went communication-wise with the police? The police were wonderful. They were absolutely wonderful. I cannot say enough about how good they were. In fact, after court was finished, I wrote a letter to the chief of police explaining to him how thankful we were and what a good job the police officers had done 
and they actually put it up on their intranet so that, you know, whenever one of the police officers opened their computer, that letter was the first thing that came up. And so it went right across the force so they could all see the work that these guys had done. You know, they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing. And to this day, I still have contact with some of them. Well, that letter must have made them feel really good. That was really nice of you. To tell police and to tell their superiors that are in charge of their files, it's important to say when somebody does something great, over and above, a good job, because they hear the opposite 10 times, 100 times more than they ever hear the positive. That's good advice for our listeners. Thank you for that. How did you get through those early days? They were very, very, very difficult. Probably because we're very close-knit, number one. Our family is very important. Stacey and Chad were 18. They were almost 19 by the time TJ's body had been found. And so they were adults, and they were included in every discussion and every decision. And they were very, very good. Uh, Our friends were very good. For me, particularly, my faith was challenged. And then I guess we define to some degree, I think you never really understand faith until you're challenged and and make your own decisions based on, on those challenges. But it's certainly my faith is, has always been what's kept me going. Good. That's good that you found something that you were able to hold on to like that. It's very important. Yes. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool that if you could tell everyone you know about Mourning the Murdered, that would be so helpful to us and we would really appreciate it. You can let them know that we can be found on Google Play, Stitchers, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. So be sure to download each episode and don't forget to like us on Facebook. This will really help us get more exposure. Thanks so much. And don't forget, tell a friend. I would really like for this podcast to drop weekly so as many loved ones' voices can be heard as possible. Morning the Murdered have both Patreon and PayPal accounts. If you would be able to contribute to help us to keep the show going, we would greatly appreciate it and thank you in advance. You would get a shout-out on a future episode, and we would mail you a thank-you card signed by me. You can find us at Patreon, or for PayPal, send to morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you for your generosity, and now back to the show. TJ's body was found on February 8th. He lay there. In the cold, harsh winter, he was found covered in 18 inches of snow. The police had to erect a heated army tent over poor TJ's lifeless body for four days before they could remove him. The police informed the Weebs that they had been directed to a body that they believed was their son's. It had already been days of agony not knowing where he was. That was hard enough, don't you think? But they still had hope at that point. Hope they would find TJ alive. Now they had to wait four days knowing there was a body knowing that the police believed it to be their sons. What a dreadful time that must have been. It was then confirmed that it was TJ's body. Chad Hanser, Anthony Pulsifer, 
and Dominic Urichin were all charged and convicted in the murder of T.J. Weeb. There was also a young offender involved, who must remain nameless, and was eventually acquitted. There were three adults and one juvenile. He was just a few weeks shy of his 18th birthday, so he was, even though he was arrested once, he was an adult. He had planned TJ's murder when he was juvenile, so he was treated as a juvenile. The way it went down is the preliminary hearing went for the three adults all together, and then the juvenile had his own preliminary hearing. The three adults went through the prelim, and then when they went to start the regular trial, the first day, they decided they wanted them their trials to be split, which is a delay tactic, right? Because the the jury and the judge and everybody is ready, and the crown is ready for a trial of three individuals, and they their lawyers said that they didn't feel they'd get a fair trial that way, and they wanted the trials to be severed. So each would be tried on their own. The judge, to his credit, said, okay, but we're starting today. So one of you better be ready to go. And so they started off with Anthony Pulsifer. Anthony Pulsifer was in the car sitting behind TJ. And based on what he has said and others have said, he is the one that did everything to TJ to kill him. And TJ did not die quickly. And there were many things that were done to him to kill him. And Anthony Pulsifer was sitting behind him, and he did most of, of what was done. He was found guilty by a jury of second-degree murder and of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, which doesn't even make any sense. Well, the charges were first-degree and conspiracy, but he was found guilty of second-degree that was a decision the jury made, and because of two separate charges, they can find whatever they find for each charge. Oh, my so goodness. That ended up being that he ended up with a sentence of 15 years to life, which means no parole for 15 years. The second individual that was in the car that was sitting beside TJ claimed he really didn't do anything, didn't stop it, though, and he decided he would plea bargain his Chad Hanser is his name. He plea bargained, but he plea bargained a second degree murder. But this judge was the same judge that heard Anthony Pulsifer's case, and he gave him exactly the same sentence. So his plea bargain didn't earn him anything, really. Uh, certainly the first one was worst because, you know, you're so worried that because the jury can find anything. You're so worried that he'll be acquitted or, you know, that things will go bad somehow. So there is relief in that for sure. Uh, the third individual who was the middleman who arranged to get these two to do the job, the jury was hung on the first degree murder charge because he wasn't in the car. And they found him guilty of conspiracy to commit first degree murder. They gave him, I can't remember his exact sentence. I think it was 11 years for conspiracy, which is a very long sentence for conspiracy. If you look at, at case law in Canada, I don't know if there's anybody that's ever had one as long or longer. But then on top of that, he refused to testify in court against the juvenile. And he was given two contempt of court charges that were added 
to his sentence, not they weren't cons- consecutive, which is usually the case in Canada. Uh, sorry, they weren't concurrent. They were consecutive. And so that means that he ended up with, I believe, somewhere around 13 and a half years. Uh, he served every day of that, plus a bit more because he screwed up a few times, I guess. And But he served his entire sentence and was released with delusions of stabbing people, most likely to reoffend, and being a paranoid schizophrenic. But he served his entire sentence and he was out. And is it... Uh, not typical in Canada to only serve two-thirds of a sentence. So was this unusual to serve the complete sentence like that? I would say it was, and I would say it was indicative of who he was and what he was doing. Right. You know, I I think sometimes, and it is certainly case by case, the juvenile um, was held in the juvenile center for, I can't remember now, he, his was the last trial anyways. So several years, I think, two years maybe. I think it was 23 months, something like that. Anyways, he elected to have a jury less trial, in other words, to be tried by the judge only. He went through the, went through the case, and at the end of the day, neither of the other two that were already incarcerated for their part in TJ's killing would testify against him. The judge decided that she would not use their taped interviews, which did indicate that he was the ringleader of this, because their on-the-stand testimony contradicted it. So in her opinion, she didn't know if she should believe what was on the stand or what their, their videotaped statements were, which are the statements that put them in jail. Dominic Urishin, who was the middleman, refused to testify against him at all. And so she acquitted him. <laughs> really? She acquitted him. And, you know, if you've ever been to court, uh, you know that when a judge gives their statement, it's about an hour and a half. They go through the whole case. They tell you exactly everything that's happened, what the, the coroner's report says, like everything. They go through the whole thing. They tell you the whole happening all over again. And then they give their decision. This particular judge came out. She sat down and she said, while I have no doubt that Mr. So-and-so had some involvement in Mr. Weave's murder, I have no proof, therefore I'm acquitting him. And she turned around and walked out. Oh, that just must have been horrible to sit and watch. It, it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable experience to know that he was walking away and he was the, he's, he was the only person besides the girl. He was the only person that knew TJ. The other three didn't even know him. Oh my goodness. So he was the one, you know, the one conduit. It, it didn't make any sense. And we were, we were equally devastated because the crowns, crowns that we had on our case were wonderful. They went back to their department and apparently they, the way they decide if they're going to appeal something, is to take a vote of the crowns and they took a vote and the crowns voted it down and so they didn't appeal it we were that was probably more devastating than the fact that he was acquitted because we expected that the crowns believed that he had done this and we believed they would go to the wall to prove it and we felt very very let down so he got no jail time at all well just pre pre pre-trial right yes 
Wow. That is just heartbreaking. Yeah. We have gone to parole hearings for all three of the killers that are in jail. And the two killers that are still in jail, they were given sentences of 15 years to life. They were eligible for day parole at 13 years. They didn't even apply for it at that point. They didn't even have, the one fellow didn't even have escorted absences. So escorted absences are the least amount of freedom that somebody can have in in release from jail. It wasn't until 17 years after these people had been in jail that one of them achieved day parole. And it will be, it was 17 years in January. So he, uh, I guess it was just before 17 years that he got day parole. The other fellow does not even have escorted absences. So he's at 17 years now, he's still in jail. The girl that he was murdered because of should have been charged as well because she actually set him up for the murder and she knew he was going to be murdered. The police did not charge her because they felt that they needed her as a witness. The best friend who lured him into this murder plot? Much to the chagrin of TJ's parents, she was never charged. She helped to plan his murder. She, who TJ felt responsible for and treated like a little sister. She, who TJ was always there for. She, who deceived and misled her best friend not charged. I can't quite wrap my head around it. The thought of a best friend committing such a heinous act as that is treacherous and would hurt so deeply. I would think it would cause such a hurt in the loved ones of the betrayed that that too would be hard to bear. Betrayed. To deliver or expose to an enemy by treachery or disloyalty. Betrayed by a best friend. Appalling. It seems there were so many people involved in TJ's murder. How unimaginable it must have been for you to try to understand why no one ever said anything. Well, and that, of course, that came out in court, you know, like, uh, because there were four that were charged. There really should have been five. For those still in prison awaiting parole hearings, it is proven that when prisoners ask for parole, impact statements from loved ones are extremely important in giving the parole board insight into the pain that the family still feels, and it helps the board evaluate and refuse early, non-statutory release back into the community. I see, this is what I was saying before. A parole board is looked upon as being, you know, a sort of a revolving door. Uh, just let people go and, and don't think about it. But that's not been my experience. My experience has been that the parole board listens very carefully to your statements. It's very important that victims make victim statements to the parole board. And not just at parole hearings, but you can send statements into the parole board every day of the, every day if you want to. Of the, of the time that they're in jail. I mean, we don't send them every day, but I send maybe one a year. And then when it's time for a parole hearing, they read all of those statements. They read your victim impact statement from court. And then if you're there, of course, you can present 
your victim statement in person, which I have always done. And they listen very carefully, you know, to what you say. And they take that into consideration in, in what's happened. And I mean, you know, for the first, I don't know, first parole hearing for sure for all of them, they didn't even mention TJ's name. They didn't admit that they had done anything wrong. You know, it was just like they, they felt it was time that they should get out without any responsibility for what they had done. You know, that didn't fly with the parole board. And of course, like those are things that I address then when I do a victim statement, right? Like you don't even say his name. Like you don't even understand the damage that you've done to our family, you know, and this kind of thing. So of course, then in their next parole hearing, they mention those things. They did actually come out and say, and I challenged them several times in my victim statements at parole hearings, that you lied on the stand and did not say what happened with the individual that was acquitted because your lack of, of truth and your lack of willingness to, to testify against that person, TJ's other killer is walking free. And that's your fault. And that's on you guys. We were told they wouldn't, they didn't want to do it because they would be seen as jailhouse rats and they would get beat up and all the rest of it. But in the parole hearings now, each of them has admitted that they did lie about that individual and that he was the ringleader, but he's being tried. I phoned the crown right away and I said, they've admitted that they lied. And he said, there's nothing that can be done about it because he's already been tried for it. So your impact statements definitely impacted them, let's say, by wanting them to say the name and they started to take responsibility, but it still didn't help to get this other person charged because he had already been acquitted. That's right. Yeah. So he walks free. I would urge those that have the opportunity to speak at parole hearings to do so, to help keep miscreants like these off our streets. Look to the weebs for inspiration, as they have done so much work toward helping others through their various fundraising efforts and support groups. Floyd became the executive director for a group called Gang Awareness for Parents that the Justice Minister asked him to take on, even though TJ was never involved in a gang. So which organizations would you like to tell our listeners about? As a result of TJ's funeral, actually, when we knew there would be money that would be coming in from the funeral, we wanted to use that money to help kids, help other kids not do drugs. We felt a peer mentoring program of some sort where kids talked to kids and, and worked with them would be a good program to have. So we took the money from the funeral and we gave it to the Louis Rail School Division and we created a fund within their organization called the TJ Weave Educational Awareness Fund. We put all the money in there and then that money was supposed to be spent by the school division. They vetted all of the proposals. Teachers could make a proposal to that fund for money to pay for a program with kids who were doing a project to help other kids not do drugs. It was a really good idea. And then Floyd's mom died, and there was money that came in from that, and that went into that, and then some people made some donations and so on and so forth. And then by the time court finished, we were ready to, you know, start thinking about what we wanted to really do. And there was about, I guess, $8,000 in that fund, which was not enough for all the schools in Louis Riel to have access to just the interest from that. It wouldn't, you know, there'd, there'd be only maybe one program a year that would be able to be covered. So we decided to hold a fundraiser 
and we held a big gala dinner and dance, and we raised $54,000 in one night. Fantastic. And gave, yeah, and we gave all that money to Louisville School Division and said, now you have enough for your schools. And the agreement was that they could spend the interest, but they not the capital. We decided that if we were doing that for Louisville School Division, that's our whole home division, that's where we live, and that's where our kids had gone to school. We felt that we needed to expand it. And so then we created the TJ's Gift Foundation. And we started holding galas every year to raise money to have kids help other kids not do drugs in provinces, in schools throughout the province. Through the years, I guess we've probably raised around three hundred fifty to $400,000 that it's gone back to the schools. You've been uh, very active. And it always amazes me when people can go out and do something amazing like what you've done, having TJ's gift out there. Well, it gives you purpose, right? It right. gives you purpose. The other work that we do, though, is in victim rights. I'm now the executive director for MOVA, which is the Manitoba Organization for Victim Assistance. And that is families of homicide victims that support other families of homicide victims. So we try and we'll help people write victim impact statements. We can go to court with people. We can go to parole hearings with people. We can just meet with people, you know, on a basis that's convenient to the the family. And, you know, it's often a mom or a dad that just needs to talk. You know, your family doesn't want this for you. Your friends don't want this for you. And so when this happens to you, they are... They're trying everything they can to make it better. They don't realize they can't make it better. You know, all of the goodwill and all of the love and all of the compassion and everything that they're doing right is not going to take away what happened. Your life has changed and it's, it's, it's not ever going back to what it was. And it's changed in something that you didn't want, you didn't plan for. It's probably polar opposite of what you would plan for your life. You have to find a way to make a path through that. And I think family and friends, after a while, you know, they 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 get discouraged. I'd say, for lack of a better term, they're trying to make it better for you. They want to make it better, and they can't, and they don't understand why they can't because they haven't experienced it. Right? Everybody's experienced death. Nobody in the in the larger population, the larger population has not experienced murder. And it's, that's different than death. It's different than a car accident or a stillborn, you know, even an accidental death. It's, it's, I'm not saying it's any worse. I'm just saying it's different. And how people handle that is different. And the aftermath of murder, for lack of a better term, I think, your lives are very, very, very different than what you plan. So MOVA is a place with people that understand that. Because we've all done it. We're all doing it. And we understand, you know, 10 years after the fact that all of a sudden you have a panic attack over something that's a trigger for you. And, you know, for me, TJ was strangled. One of the things that was done to him was strangled. I couldn't wear a chain on my neck for 10 years. That affected you. Terribly. You know, I know people who've had loved ones killed in a parking garage, they can't go into a parking garage anymore. I have, I know people who, you know, has had somebody murdered on a street corner. They can't drive by that corner anymore. You know, it, it, there are triggers that are created by the events that you, you have to really work hard 
it's to be worthwhile for you and you have to really work hard to get over those. And I can wear a chain around my neck now, but I couldn't for 10 years. At nine years, <laughs> this is very interesting because you asked me about when TJ was born. At nine years after TJ had died, the night before his birthday, and I had this, by this point, had had a total hysterectomy, ovaries, everything out. At that nine-year anniversary, the day before his birthday, I started going into labor. I felt like I was in labor. I was awake all night long, feeling my body contracting. It's now, amazing what the body will do. Why would that happen? To me, 10 years was the anniversary that I was dreading. This was nine years. It didn't make any sense to me at all. And I couldn't control it. And it was just, it was just like I was totally in labor and I was, had no capacity to be in labor anymore. You know, these weird things happen to you and it's like, you don't understand it. And your body, your body in the back of your mind, I guess, has memories that you don't think about. And all of a sudden, you know, there's an anniversary of this or that. And I mean, for me, from Christmas, from the build up to Christmas until after TJ's birthday in March, is an anniversary after an anniversary after an anniversary of an arrest, of his funeral, when they found his body, when it went to homicide, when it went to missing persons, when a certain reporter called me at 10 o'clock at night and said to me, we're doing a story on your son. Do you have anything good to say about him? Like, oh, who does that? You know, who does that? Terrible. You know, just, just, just horrendous memories that you you might be floating along and you might be doing really well and then all of a sudden you can't sleep and you're anxious and you're crying and it's 17 years later why am I crying and I look at the calendar and I realize that's why I'm crying because it's an anniversary of some date so MOVA is a very important organization in terms of, you know, reaching out to people in terms of people reaching out to us and saying, like, I need, I need to talk. We've got people, you know, 30 years ago, somebody was murdered and the murderer was never being arrested and they're coming to MOVA sharing sessions. We hold a sharing session every month and people come and talk about, you know, what's going on. Is there anything new in their case or how are they doing? What are they, you know, what are their feelings? And the people that come to that are all people that are, you know, that have experienced some degree of what they've experienced. Can you tell um, us the uh, website for this organization for the listeners in case they would like to get in touch? Yes, it's www.mova, that's M-O-V-A dot C-A. And is there a website for TJ's Gift as well? Yeah, it's www.tjsgift, all one word. Dot com. I sort of got TJ's gift going. I have been active. I was still teaching, so I was doing TJ's gift sort of after work, but became very involved in doing victims' rights as well. I mean, I went to, I've been to Ottawa a number of times to advocate for people. I have, I sit on a, on a, the Victims Advisory Council for the Pro Board and Correctional Services Canada for the Prairie Region. Actually, Floyd started he was the first chair of that board and then when he passed away they asked me to join it so I've been sitting on that I mean we you know done work across Canada both of us have he's he'll be better known for it because he had the freedom to do a lot more travel and to meet with people than I did because I was you know still teaching 
but he did some really, really important work. And one of the things that he did was he was the originator of the victim's portal. So now instead of having the parole board or correctional services email you or phone you at any time of the day or night, if there's some kind of a thing going on with the offender, we have access to that information through a victim's portal. And that was Floyd's idea. Really? Um, There was huge forms that needed to be filled out to register with parole board, to register with correction services. He got them to combine those forms. It is truly amazing to me how this family was able to channel their grief and their loss into organizations that give back to the community. What an inspiring couple, Karen and Floyd Weebar. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Keep up all the great work in your community. I hope it helps to bring you some small comfort. Thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, giving air to this. You're very welcome. For more information concerning any groups mentioned in this podcast, please visit the Morning the Murdered Facebook page. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.